0: This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is January 8th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio.
1: Hi, my name is Keith Johnson, and I was at WRHU from 1987 till 1991, and then did some stuff for the station for a couple years after that when I was around
0: the area. Okay. Uh, What shows and programs did you work on at the station?
1: I mean, I worked pretty much across the spectrum. Um... Airwave, definitely. Uh, The Irish country shows on Saturdays, the Italian shows, the poker shows, um, New Age, the jazz, the classics, radio theater, and I did a lot of the uh, Martys for the remote sports events.
0: Okay. I, I have a memory of you being one of the more technically adept people. Do you remember doing recordings for like public affairs shows and weekend shows?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I really suck my teeth into the technical part. Uh, I think once I got a key for multi-track, I don't know if it was Studio C or what we called it back then, I felt like I had got the key, the keys to the kingdom because it was not easy to get a key to that studio. There's a lot of trust placed in when you got the key. So
0: right. definitely
1: I leaned on the technical side.
0: Yeah. Um, do you remember the transition from, I know there was a four track board in there to the eight track board. Do you remember that?
1: Oh yeah, that was that was the big moment. Um, in addition to that, I think we got the Yamaha SPXs at that point, which was huge for those of us at radio theater or just production, not only at the radio station, but I was also um, one of the primary sound guys at HTV. I think today, they're more coupled, but if we recall back then, R.H.U. was a memorial hall. R.H.U. was over the air. H.T.V. really wasn't outside of Sports Channel America. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, there was a divide. I didn't quite understand. So while I my loyalties on the softball team were always on R.H.U., <laughs>
0: um,
1: I did dedicate a lot of time over to H.T.V. And I just mentioned that because once we got the 8-track and the Yamahas in the multi-track um, studio that opened up, Like I said before, loads and loads of production possibilities for for all of the, um, I guess, all the disciplines at Hofstra.
0: Wow. Uh, It's good to see that you have the priorities on the softball side. That's that's good to know. (laughs) Um, Now, was that, the next question is, did you have any uh, positions of management? Did you run any of the programs uh, or departments? So, yeah, I
1: joined the radio station in 87 in the fall when I got there. I switched my major after about a week. (laughs) <laughs> um, I got, I would got my, you know, cleared for air on running the board first and then voice. And I was assist, I was, became an assistant executive engineer in December. And then in May for their 30th or 35th anniversary, I forget which one I'm getting very old. Mm. Um, I was executive engineer. So I was executive engineer for the next year and I started relinquish the duties at the end. And then I was more of a, a senior production person and that's on running the boards or the studios. And then on the programming side, uh, I believe in around that time, Jason Levy uh, needed a show when he was PD. And I've been putting a show together uh, because WRHU had this incredible um, vinyl collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was called the British Blues Explosion. I was really into that genre of music. And so I put a two-hour show together, I think every Saturday or something like that. I would record one live and record one on tape. Um, and that show eventually got handed over to Joe, I forget his last name, Lavecchio or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that he, they were recognized by NPR, but that's, I, I don't have official confirmation of that.
0: Wow. Very cool. Very cool. When you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames?
1: Um, I used my own name. I wasn't clever enough to do a nickname. I think when I used to read news copy for Denise, I would come up with some characters, but mostly uh, I just used Keith. I wish okay. I'd been more clever.
0: yeah yeah i hear that um okay so let's go back to the beginning and i make this a two-part question but you know go with whatever works for you i always want to know what brought people to the radio station to begin with and then if you could paint a picture of what the station was like where was it maybe people that you met uh what was going on in the office or the studios when you first got there
1: yeah, so I think in my first week, I was, I was living on campus. In my first week, um, I when I went to Hofstra, I was a computer science major. And somebody said, oh, yeah, there's a radio station that's live on air you can get on campus. I was like, oh, okay, let me check it out. And I was kind of blown away about how organized and how good the students sounded. Like, it was pretty tight, a real radio station. I shouldn't have doubted it, but I'm naive at this point. And I asked someone, I was like, how do you get involved with this? Because I've always loved music. Growing up, and, and it's particularly radio as a medium, was always my favorite. Hmm. I think that the, the the ability to be so creative with the imagination is what drew me. So I went down to Memorial Hall, said, I'd like to get involved. I got into um, an engineering class right away. Um, Vic was my teacher. And I got cleared. So I was probably doing board within about three weeks. I did all of my hours. um and it was at Memorial Hall. And at that time, I switched my major. <laughs> and the music office, that small little room, was only, only had one of the shelves at the time. They didn't have the shelves on the other side. It was a smaller desk. There weren't any guest chairs or any comfy couches or comfy chairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the main office, all the way at the end of the hallway, there were probably just four desks. There wasn't a desk in the middle. And there were only maybe about a dozen toothpicks in the ceiling above where Jeff sat.
0: Mm, the famous toothpick forest. Yep. So, so you, I guess, you saw the relative beginnings of that before it, it really grew.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I recall it was a small forest. Maybe a dozen is too small, but it wasn't what it was. You know, a year later when it really exploded out of the seams, WRH you did in terms of the people who got involved. The expanded programming, the expanded sports, and um, you know the overall dedication from a wave that came in and really took WRJU to the next step. In my point of view, there, um, and that's what Memorial was like. It was always, always bustling in that office. Um, even if you weren't on the air, you would just hang out there because it was just like-minded people. It was like summer camp. You know, mm-hmm. you're there and hanging out and having a great time for a common cause.
0: Mm. Very cool. Um, So you mentioned a couple times changing your major. I guess what was your intention when when you came to Hofstra? It wasn't necessarily working at the radio station, but what did you think was going to happen?
1: I mean, so I was one of the first people who got a Mac, and I started to code a little bit um, here and there just for giggles. Mm -hmm. And um, that seemed like a career I I wanted to get involved with. Um, I had a job in high school. After school each day, doing data entry at a place at least out computer equipment. As crazy it was, I somehow found that, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So I figured that was my calling. Um, I think uh, I got lazy with the math. I got—I was having so much fun at the radio station. Um, it really, uh, my creativity juices were flowing. Like I, I saw all kinds of possibilities that, at that age, at that time of my life, were probably a little bit more immediate and appealing than rolling up my sleeves and and trying to suffer through calculus and, and the math that's required for computer science. I'm not undermining. I'm just like, it's a lot of huffing and puffing. Um, yeah. So I switched my major. I loved the people at the radio station. They were so nice. And, um, and that, and, and I didn't look back funny enough. I, I work in technology.
0: Oh, so, so the, the through line carries through, but just for those who may not have known what computer and coding was, in the 1980s, could you give us like uh, then versus now, like it's completely different, but there must there must be some through lines or some commonality.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if, if for the uninitiated, I guess C++ is a core basic right now. You need to know that for everything. And then the the coding languages right now are a lot more friendlier and um, easier. I'm not going to say easier to do, but they're, they're much more logical. I was coming from learning COBOL and Pascal um, at Hofstra, which was uh, right before like data structures and C++ and all that. Um, Very little memory. You'd go to the lab um, and check in and get a terminal and frustratingly try to finish your programming that looked good on paper, a really good idea, but never worked. And so that added to the frustration and Mm -hmm. also added to the transition out of computer science and into the... Uh, school communications.
0: Yeah. And, and I can, I can picture the, 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 the computer monitors and the dark background and sort of the green fonts and so forth. I mean, that's, it's light years in the past, but, uh, I can see the immediacy of radio being, uh, a definite draw because like you say, you're working on this, you know, computer program or, or the coding. And it may or may not amount to anything, whereas you get behind the mic or or turn on a turntable and it's and it's there and it's live and it's happening. That must have been uh, a big difference.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think you know the immediacy of being able to accomplish something uh, and everything that comes with that. I mean, it's like currency. It's not only for your your soul, but also for your social status, your friends. Um, you know all the friends that we made at the radio station that you worked with, you wanted to you know make sure that you came through for them and vice versa. Um, so that the social politics and teamworks that we had at WRHU, you know they weren't quite the lessons I was thinking of at the time, but upon reflection, um, very profound.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned doing uh, tracking hours to get to be an engineer. Do you remember anything about that or was do you remember doing an announcing class?
1: Yeah. So the tracking hours, I first, you know, Vic said, go ahead and come and track with me the first four hours, which I did. He actually let me on the board the last hour. He wasn't supposed to, but um, he knew I'd been practicing uh, a lot. So he had he had some pretty good um, trust in me. So I'm always thankful for that opportunity. He suggested that I go check out the Irish country stuff Saturday. I was like, oh man, Saturday at five, I'm usually getting ready to go out. But I went and I was completely blown away and they had me at hello. And I said, I want to be good enough at the board to be able to do this show, because that show was incredibly challenging to do, but very gratifying if you could do it. You had to be, for, for me, and when I was executive engineer, you had to be most skilled to do that, jo- that show. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun, the hours I put in. And I, I put in more than, than what was required, because I just kept showing up with Tony and Pat every Saturday for like a month. And announcing-wise, I had Lisa and Sue. I think Lisa did the first couple announcing classes and then Sue picked up for whatever reason, whether it was a conflict or Sue was looking to get back into it at that point. So I was very lucky that I had two probably, at the time, they were the most experienced in terms of, of being able to teach voice. Um, so I was, I was incredibly lucky. I don't have the pipes for radio, but the cadence um, and just the consciousness of learning what not to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was lucky to have two really top pros um, teach me that and teach me things like the Oslo Thistle and Betty Bada and things like that.
0: Yeah. And so many people have said, you know, it's not necessarily the, the pipes or the voice. It's using space and spacing and time and finding a rhythm that that's what you learn in the announcing classes and you learn how to apply that and how to become a professional. So that's, that's cool to hear. Um, you also mentioned the the challenge of, of engineering for the Irish shows, and I know what you're talking about because I did that. But what for you was the challenge, and and you know the, the the draw and saying this is this is the ultimate level, you know, of what we're doing here.
1: Yeah. So first of all, um, Tony Jackson and Pat Thompson, probably you know, were probably the closest that we had to the highest level of professionalism that was on the air. Their show was organized planned they were great on the mic they they understood their audience they were fantastic communicators obviously they brought in loads of revenue for the radio station um so they were uh, they didn't walk around like vip's they didn't walk around entitled but they were definitely vip's um so right away the standard is is much higher than you, you know the classics or jazz show and that's that's not to dismiss those it's just that when you put on Beethoven's ninth, you have 72 minutes to relax, <laughs> right? Just make sure the levels are good. But the those shows, the Tony's Pat and Tony show, the songs were maybe three minutes with tempo. They weren't the type of songs that that you could just um, lay lay over the beginning of one, over the ending of the other. You had to really you, you had to drop the needle and listen to the ending before you started. So you knew how to do the transition. Um, because it could sound really poor if you just were pretty lazy and just took the last five seconds of the first five seconds laid them over each other. And also, Pat and Tony were aware of that. And they wouldn't say anything to you, but I think where we get back, like, you know, these people have to be a little bit more – they have to raise their levels. And they did it in a good way. Um, In addition to that, you know, they broke almost every every song. The most that they would go without breaking was maybe two songs. Maybe if Tony was having a bad day at the office, it would be three. So if every song is less than three minutes and you're breaking after every song and you have to be aware of the song that you're playing and the song that you're going to, to make it tight when they're finishing their break and they're waiting for the music to come up. And there's a certain aesthetic to that, that show that, you know, I felt compelled to make sure that, that I held that to the highest standard because I just love the challenge and when I would tell my friends who were not involved with the radio station, when we go out later Saturday night, like, what'd you do this afternoon? Did you watch the Penn state game or whatever? And be like, no, I was at the radio station doing three hours, <clears throat> excuse me, of Irish country music. They would, and I had the time in my life. They were just be like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, because they couldn't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't expect them to understand it, but for those of us who did it, I felt that that was, if you could do that show, you were, you were ready to be a professional.
0: Amen. Yeah, I could feel the adrenaline and the excitement as you're talking about that because it, it was true. It was very fast paced, and you wanted to do your best, and and you didn't want to interrupt the flow of things. So, yeah, it was a challenge. And you know, if you take the genre and change it, it's not Irish country and make it, you know, top forty or alternative or rock or something like that. It's similar to what's on commercial radio. It's just a, a genre that's not necessarily uh, on the bigger FM stations. <laughs>
1: hundred percent. And it, I actually, I really enjoyed the music. So that was, you know, another kind of side benefit of the involvement at WRHU is you got exposed to so much um, music or programming that you probably wouldn't seek out on your own. And, you know, there was very little programming at WRHU that I didn't enjoy. I became a huge fan of a lot of the artists of, of New Age. One of the best shows I ever saw to, went to was a New Age show. Um, I've always had a, a pretty good appreciation for jazz. I mean, Airwave, you guys flipped me into Alternative Guy in like two months. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the Irish country music, I mean, their library, again, exhaustive, fantastic library. Some of it was Pat, some of it was Tony's, but a lot of it was WRHU's. You don't find that anymore. And that's that is some great music.
0: Hmm. So do you remember getting on the air the first time, either on the mic or running the board? Do you remember your feelings? Were you nervous, excited? What was going on in your mind? Oh my God. I can
1: still like picture the studio, how bright the lights were, where the shadows were from the carts. I was so, so nervous. And my hand was like kind of trembling as I brought the mic up for the first time I was going to speak on the air without anyone there. And I was horrible. I think I was trying to read a news story and I lost focus because I was so nervous and I ended up just putting a tail on it, which you're not supposed to editorialize when you're reading the news. And I said something like, oh, that's really nice. Good for them. (laughs) And, And I caught myself. I was like, no, don't do that. And it was a disaster. And everybody said, record your first. I did. And I destroyed the tape. I wish I hung on to it, but I was just so embarrassed.
0: And and the world kept spinning, and the tower was still working, and, and you managed to to come back and and learn from it, I imagine. Oh uh, yeah. So so who were the people? You mentioned a few names, but who were the people who were around uh, in your early days at the station that that gave you maybe good advice, or that you listened to, or that were uh, you know influential in some way?
1: Yeah, so I showed up in fall of '87. So you had Vic, you had Rat. Obviously, Jeff, John Caracciolo was there, Um, and since I was heavy into the engineering side, you know, he always gave me his time. He was always appreciative of that. Peaches and Stu were just getting stuff together um, for sports. I'm sure I'm missing a whole host of people who are already there for WRHU sports. You had Lisa. Um, Jason was the program director, Jason Levy, or about to be the program director. Uh, I think Andrew was the new age person. I don't know who was the custodian of Airwave at that time. Um, But there was also, and there was another show that was about deep tracks on, you know, the, like the seventies and eighties music. And I forget the name of that show, but those were, those were the folks I recall my first year who really, um, they all like played a major influence because they had been there before. Uh, the thing that re- I, I keep going back to that was just such a wonderful surprise was how professional th- the, the unit was when I walked in there. It wasn't just let sh- a club let show up and see what happens. I mean, you ha- you had to perform um, to be able to get access to the air, to get access to the equipment, but also to get access into that network. Um, mm-hmm. And if you performed, you know it was, it was fantastic to, to get the approval. Of, of these more senior people who were themselves professionals. I don't want to talk in circles, but that was really the the vibe there is like they really made you work hard, but it was very rewarding, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, 100%. Now, do you feel like there was a point in time where you thought, okay, I, I can do this, I can keep up with these people, I can... Meet these standards. Was there a moment, or was it just sort of uh, you looked around at one point and said, "Oh, I'm I'm part of this. I'm I can do this."
1: I I go back to the the, the Irish country show. Yeah. I think the, the second time I did that on my own, and Tony's wife Marine Marine, sorry, um, she patted me on the back and said, "You did a great job today. Thank you." And she, you know, they didn't hand things out lightly like that. Yeah, uh, and I felt like I was part of the club at that point. Uh, and I, at, at that's when I had also started to realize how much uh, revenue they brought in, because at this point, it's the winter, and we're starting to gear up for the, the marathon in, in March. Uh, so plans are being laid, and, and it's becoming obvious to me how, again, how professional the whole unit was. I don't mean to harp on it, but I can't state it enough, and, but, all, but in addition to that, <clears throat> how important pat tony uh, were their dedication their families their their network to uh you know helping wrhu so it was it was about 180 degree de- 180 degree turn for me mm. the second time i did that solo and i got the accolades and it just felt like when i walked in to the memorial that next monday i just felt like everybody's looking at me like i was uh, a peer or an equal if that makes sense
0: yeah Yeah. Gosh, what a, what a great feeling. Cause everybody talks about Tony Jackson and and Pat Thompson, and obviously they were the guys on the mic and they were the stars and they were the well-known personalities, but Maureen was just as important. I feel like for the success of that program by talking to people on the phone and, and especially helping uh, new engineers, board ops, make sure that they were on task and that she was, you didn't know it at first, or at least I didn't know it at first, but she was paying attention to everything. Like she, I, th- I feel like she was as important to the success of the program, uh, as Tony was and, um, that she noticed that that must've been a great feeling.
1: Yeah. So just to paint uh, a picture for everyone, you're at the, the studio in Memorial and it's, let's just call it an L shape where you have the board in front of you and the L is to your right where the, in the corner, you have the car to the diagonal and then you have the phone and there's a chair there for the phone. Who's looking into the studio so if you're doing that show, you're spending at least two hours, intense hours, and you're listening to marine work the phones by paying attention to everything, and she's right next to you, and mm-hmm. you have the little commentary here and there, and she's on it the entire time. Not one call was missed, not one name wasn't mentioned, That I, you know of someone saying, hey, can you mention my name, my family, you know, our communion, whatever it was. Um, incredible, the energy that she put in. She really backboned that and enable the, the on-air people to be free and focus on the on-air stuff, which, um, may sound kind of basic, but it is not to be able yeah. to, to be able to support that show the way they did. So Pat and Tony could have the freedom they did, um, is, is a huge, huge testament.
0: Yeah. And those phones never stopped ringing.
1: They never stopped ringing. So then when I got my own show on airwave, I was like, <laughs> oh, this is, you know, maybe I should bring someone in to help me with the phones. I get like three phone calls. Because you're thinking this is going to happen for every show, and it just didn't.
0: Right, right, yeah. Three phone calls was sometimes that was a really great night. That was oh, a good week. Yeah,
1: well, you're you're bringing me up in front of the crew, going, Keith, how did you get three phone calls? That's how exciting it was.
0: <laughs> um, oh, that's a great feeling. That's uh, yeah, wow, that's 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 very cool. Um, you, I think you alluded to this earlier, but it seems like socially, uh, within the station, uh, you know, on air stuff aside, it seems like you you kind of fit in. Uh, pretty quickly. does that right? Or, or was there a moment where, again, where you were like, okay, yeah, I'm going to be spending all my free time here or at least a lot of it?
1: Yeah, I think it's, there's a little bit of both. If you When you showed up and you said, I want to get involved, well, anybody can do that, right? But when you, when they give you a chance and you're rolling up your sleeve, you're huffing and puffing, you know, the first things I did the first couple of weeks there, other than going to my classes and observing, you know, I would, pick, I would empty the trays from bits and bytes for the people who are really busy. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't like hanging over the shoulder, but every once in a while, I would just I would try to clean off the desks because also food lying around kind of bothered me. But I look like a hero when I say I was just trying to help clean off the desks. Um, but it, but it, it, all levity aside, if you rolled up your sleeves and you got as involved as possible, you socially you were in, and then it was a matter of taking the next step and being able to be on the air and contribute in ways that were meaningful to the mission of the of the station, the station manager, and Jeff. I know that sounds like business speak. But, um, you know, if you, when you are involved at that level and you have that passion, that mission becomes your mission. It becomes very personal. That's the way I viewed it.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't agree more. And, um, it's that, it's that sense of responsibility and, and belonging and, and it's not to minimize the tray stuff at all because you're, you're among college kids who are used to taking care of themselves and the place could get a little bit messy. I think that's being kind at least. So, Thank you for doing that because there are a few hey, of no us clean up. Yeah, <laughs> there weren't many, but there were a few. So I, I totally, totally feel it there. Um, I'm expecting oh, a plaque
1: in Dempster after you're done with this, Brian, for my cleaning
0: up with the desk. So <laughs> you know. All right. Well, we'll make that happen. Um, uh, speaking, uh, I want to go back to the, to the stuff with the HTV and not a lot of people were spending time in both places. Did you, what was that like for you? Um, you know, the difference in the atmospheres and, and what attracted you to both? Well, so because I I had some great
1: mentorship from Vic, John Crotrillo again, um, Rat and those guys, and I was a sonic aficionado, I wrapped myself around the axle, axle pretty quickly about the sonic experience, you know, the levels had to be great. When I was cutting tape, the editing had to be tight. If the levels weren't right, I'd recut. I mean, really the fine details. That was the the music I loved. The production value was always very high, whether it's a studio album or live. Um, And then when I started working at Sports Channel, they were over in the HTV studios and I would help out with sound every once in a while, running board, things like that. And so I got to know some of the some of the, the the then juniors and seniors who were doing their own shows. Um, and they would ask me if I was comfortable coming and, and, and doing like running the, the sound for the rehearsals. Cause they all had to do like 20 minute shows uh, either in their junior or senior year. They had to write the script, you know, do the whole bit. Um, and I had no problem with that. As long as I could get time uh, running board and chal- getting being challenged from a sonic point of view, whether it was RHU, which of course my loyalty lied, I would never, I would never, um, I never really prioritized any HTV gig over a WRHU commitment, but I did modify my RHU schedule to fit the HTV shows once mm-hmm. I'm like a, a standard on some of those shows. Um, for me, uh, I, you know, it wasn't, it was just an extension. You know, it's great that they're all in Dempster now. Um, I was always, I was always kind of curious about why there felt like there was a, a divide for some people um, and Jeff told me once, he's like, they're just jealous that, you know, we we get revenue and we're over the air. And I, I don't mean to belittle it like that, but no, no. he was just trying to diffuse it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think there was some amount of competition that way that, that maybe the TV studios, uh, again, when we were there, had newer equipment. And it seemed like there was more funding and more of the university interest in that aspect, whereas – WRHU was on the air. And like you said, fundraising and reaching out to the community and doing these things. And we were doing all that with less. And I think yeah. there was, there was some a different mindset there.
1: Yeah. And I think if you don't know the background of 82, 83, 84, I wasn't there, but, um, you know, the elders and especially John had told me like what they had to go through to get the new transmitter up on C and all that. So if, if you step in at the time that we were there, and you saw all the great shiny equipment for HTV and mm-hmm. kind of like the old pots that we had at RHE, You'd be like, oh, how come we're getting this short under the stick? But you don't really realize everything that had to happen for us to have the, a, a reliable transmitter and one that reached, you know, two, five, 10 X the audience uh, before we walked in there. But I think, I think that comes with age.
0: Yeah. And, and doing this project has led me to some insights about, Jeff Kraus's long-term thinking about the station and that there were things that we were not privy to that he had in mind and and wheels that were in motion before you and I got there that were continuing through and and I always feel it's 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 such a shame that that Jeff didn't get to see the realization of a lot of those ideas because he worked very hard and very behind the scenes to get those things happening.
1: So I don't really know exactly when Jeff and company saw the school communications breaking out from the liberal arts program. Mm -hmm. But it it certainly seemed to me as that was happening afterwards that he had to have some idea, whether it was that detailed or a general idea, the way that everything had been organized and had been laid out. Um, And I think that's just, that's such a, first of all, testament to Jeff and to Hofstra, but also, you know, lessons learned as I'm in the professional world is that you might get sometimes frustrated with what's going on in, in your gig. Um, but you know, unless you control the long-term planning, some, uh, I learned a lesson from RHU back then that it's just, it's wasted energy to sit there and, and have the wheels spin constantly
0: about, um, uh, what's going on. Right. Right. Now in the, in those early days, when you first got to the station and, 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 meeting Jeff, I mean, uh, you, you described the office and, and somewhat the layout. Do you remember him being, uh, you know, a welcoming presence, intimidating? What was your sense of, of Jeff as a leader?
1: Well, when you don't know Jeff, he can come across as intimidating, but he he doesn't he doesn't do it on purpose. But he knows he's doing it. Mm. But at the same time, you know he he's got to be careful with the amount of time that he's going to spend and invest with, you know, the people who work there. Because if if you're just a passerby looking for some quick glory, you know, I think his attitude was that's great, get your glory, but you know, I don't really have time for you. But when you really got vested, like I said before, it was clear to him that. You know the the station's mission was your mission. Um, then at the right time, you know Jeff always opened up to you. And uh, for me personally, we had a little bit of um, some some commonality in our backgrounds because for when I was young, I, I we my family had moved out to Manila,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so a lot of my friends were either at Subic or Clark. So if you don't know Manila, those are the the U.S. military, or they were the U.S. military destinations. Well, Jeff, when he served, had been in Subic, and it was um, – we weren't there at the same time, but not, not much in Manila changed for 15 mm. years because of the way that, you know, these countries take, take an eternity to uh, develop. And the reason why I mentioned that is because there'd be times where we'd be in the studio waiting for something, maybe radio theater, and he and I would just start talking about the, the characteristics of what it was like to be around Subic or in Makati, which is in Manila, or things like that, just from our, our experience there. Um, and, uh, I always felt like that was, I really treasured the time that we got to talk about that because that was a side of Jeff. If you got to that side of Jeff, that was wonderful. Right. But also for me personally, to have that little commonality with him, um, you know, that was, it was almost worth living out of the States for four years to be able to have that.
0: Wow. That's, that's amazing to, uh, to, to have that, uh, intimate, you know, connection, relationship and to be able to talk about that. And Jeff is obviously such an interesting figure and so smart and talented in so many ways. But there's so many layers to his past and his history and how he got to there that uh, it's so that's that's so very cool that you had that uh, that link up. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, I was um, when when uh, when you were able to have a glass of scotch at his um, at his crib down down the street from Hofstra. That was a, that was a special moment.
0: Uh, I like to wrap up with this question, and it's it's somewhat unfair, but I'm I'm going to throw it out there. But we've got the benefit of hindsight, the the friendships, the relationships, the experience that that was Hofstra Radio, and and we've we've had this conversation. Obviously, it meant something to you if we're having this conversation all these years later. But when you first showed up at the radio station, when you're a freshman and and finding your way at the university. What did you think the radio station would mean to you in those early days? And what did it become? When
1: I showed up, I just wanted to um, have a shot at being able to um, influence some of the programming. I'm very passionate about music to experience what it would be like to broadcast on air, which it sounds easy when you're thinking about it in your head when you're 18 years old. Mm. But when you actually are in front of the mic the first time, you know, there are some people who are naturals. I don't think that I was. Um, and I think that was my original goal. What was such a pleasant surprise was, you know, the tightness that you got with everybody there. And they, they might not have been your best friends. Um, you know, there were clicks there like there are everywhere else. However, um, I, I can't think of any time where anybody ever let me down. And I hope that I didn't let too many people down. It was, um, it, it really exceeded uh, all expectations. And I mean, I look back and those were, were certainly the, the best days of my time at Hofstra, just kicking at memorial, kicking it in the music office, um, in between class, skipping class, watching Jeff shoot the tooth <laughs> into the forest after he got his turkey sandwich. I mean, those really were, um, you know, the finest days. And I, when I look back, it's because of everything we accomplished. It doesn't seem like it at the time. You show up, you do a, a session Tuesday morning on the classics, fine. Thursday night, airwaves, Saturday, Irish country. But that time, that experience, those relationships, they aggregate over time because I don't know a lot of people who were involved at WRHU who only did it for two hours a week. Most people did about, I don't know, I would imagine 30 to 40 hours a week, whether it was on the air or behind the scenes at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you just it, it's so special. I, I, wish I, ha- I wish my vocabulary was better, Brian, to be able to express how special it was, but it was just incredibly special and moving exceeded all expectations
0: yeah I, I can hear it in your voice and, and and the passion all these all these years later it still means so much and and that's that's totally coming across Keith this was this was awesome um, thank you so much for taking the time to share these stories and before we started recording uh, I I feel like I, I know it was only about 15 minutes I felt like it was like two hours worth of conversation in a good way like there's so many more stories to cover so I'm gonna work on more questions and and I'm really looking forward to doing this again uh, Brian, thanks so much for having me, and again, thanks for putting this together. This is this is fantastic. I really appreciate it.